You're listening to HSBC Talks Business. Learn how businesses like yours are leveraging a wide range of banking solutions to maximize their success and how HSBC is helping them. Listeners should note that this episode has been recorded remotely. Therefore, the sound quality may vary. Thank you for listening. Welcome to Inspiring Progressive Business, a podcast series for SMEs. Join us for insights from inspirational business leaders, entrepreneurs, and experts on key topics of importance to your business. Today, we're looking at tapping into external funding and how challenging that can be as individuals start their business journey, and no more so for minority and female entrepreneurs. We're gonna talk to two incredibly inspiring entrepreneurs who have both sought funding I had two very different experiences. Let me introduce you to them. The first is Kim Palmer, who's the founder of Clementine. And the second is Mark Lafleur, who's the co-founder of True Local. Both of you, thank you for being with us today. Kim, if I can come to you first, what is Clementine and what prompted you to start it? Hi, everybody. Clementine, let's start with what Clementine is. So Clementine is an app and a community that supports women who are having feelings of overwhelm or going through high levels of stress or perhaps can't sleep that well. Often I see a lot of people nodding when I'm saying this and have a lot of negative thoughts going through their heads and it stops them doing things in life. And so what we do is we work with their mindsets and we use hypnotherapy to help them stop thinking that they can't do things and help them thinking that they can do whatever they want really. And so about six years ago, I had an emotional breakdown. I won't go into all the gory details of that, but basically my world went from being very big very small overnight and I lost my confidence and I ended up with experiencing social anxiety and panic attacks on a daily basis for a number of years. Hypnotherapy was my way through that. It was a total game changer. It allowed me to start going out for dinner with my family. It allowed me to, when I was on maternity leave, go to baby groups, all that sort of thing. And it was when I returned to work actually And my eyes were a bit more open to seeing that perhaps other people might be suffering as well, that I realized that I wasn't the only one who had all of these emotional feelings all the time. And I started it actually not as a business. I didn't think, oh, one night overnight, well, I'm just going to start this business. I started it as a side hustle, actually. And I ran it from 2017 to 2019 as a passion project, just something that I love to do. But that change, we'll probably get into that a little bit more. I think that's such an amazing story. And thank you for being so upfront and honest about that, because I think so many people go through that. And I know a lot of women go through it. And actually, it's really hard to be that open. And you've turned it into an amazing business. And Mark, if I can come to you, True Local, I know it wasn't your first business, was it? So can you tell us a little about your journey and what it looked like? True Local started about five years ago, and it was actually my third business and uh, the only of which that was successful. I had two failed startups prior to that, and I love those. They're my babies, and I know that True Local wouldn't have had the success that it has without those. But the first business that I got into was an instant messaging app called Tell, and this is while I was in university. I think I might have been 22 at the time, and I heard that Snapchat got offered $3 billion by Facebook. 
And I was just a kid at the time. And if I could get $20 to go to the bar on the weekend, that, you know, was my entire life. It was great. So I couldn't even understand what a billion dollars was, let alone a million. So it really inspired me to start learning the world of entrepreneurship and tech and how all of that relates to build the business of big tech and starting to understand that, you know, this isn't just an app on a, on a phone. It's not just a toy. It's thousands of engineers and it's hundreds of millions of dollars. So we did that. And that was the first business that we got into. And then from there, got into a business called Dash Task, which was creating an online platform for people to access the sharing economy. So the idea would be that if someone needed their house painted, or if someone needed help moving a couch, they can post online and say, hey, I need someone to come and walk my dog for 20 bucks. And then people in the area could go ahead and see that that gig was posted and then go do it. So it was a proven business model all over the world, but we wanted to take it and put it into niche market, which was colleges and universities. So we did that for a year or so, and um, that ended up failing as well. We got a lot more traction with it. We were able to pitch some VCs. However, when that one failed, I really started looking to say, look, you know, why are we getting traction with these businesses, but they're never really taking off to go to the next level? And it became pretty obvious when you take a second to look in the mirror. And what was happening was that I was always treating it like part-time hobbies. Like it was nights and weekends. I still had a full-time job. I wasn't going all in on it. And it wasn't until I realized that, that I'm like, look, if I'm going to be successful as a founder, I need to quit my job, go all in. And that's where True Local was born. And for True Local, we do all locally raised meat products. So beef, chicken, pork, we focus on 100% grass-fed, pasture-raised products. We have very unique products as well, and obviously focusing on uh, wild caught. So we wanted to make it easy for people to shop for these types of products because in Canada, it isn't as easy as other places in the world. So we wanted to make sure that people could shop with producers and suppliers within their province without having to get imported products. So we just used a pretty typical e-commerce model, um, subscription-based business model, created a website, allowed people to go online, customize whatever products they wanted, and then we would ship it out to them the next day. Amazing. And good for the planet, purchasing from local suppliers, which is amazing. So both of you, as I said, have quite different journeys in some ways, but actually what you've both kind of pulled out is, you called it Kim, a side hustle. And, mm. and Mark, obviously you were saying, you know, it was evenings and weekends versus a full-time job as well. Mm. And then obviously you both shifted it to that this being your life, really, rather than it being kind of off the side. What was it that kind of then made you realize you needed to go external for some additional funding? You're running the business, but you're getting to that point. It wasn't really till I went all in. And actually, I'd sort of dabbled around with going all in, but didn't quite have the confidence to do it. So I remember it very clearly the weekend where I decided. So actually, I was at the point. So it was 2019. So the business had been running, not the business, the passion project. It'd be <laughs> running for a couple of years. I was working a full-time job. I've got two small kids. And I was on the verge of burnout, right? Because you, you just can't do all those things. I was doing all of them very, very badly. That's how I felt at the time anyway. I was crying all weekend. It was just something I had to give. And I'm having this conversation with my husband, which was, we can't continue on like this. I'm really going to lose it here. And we just talked it through and it became quite obvious. It was like, well, at that point, we'd spent all of our life savings. We'd bootstrapped the business. We had no more money left. Felt like the business had plateaued as well. It was only so far I could get with it by tinkering around in the evenings and the weekends. And it's just, I never felt like, even though we got traction, we had 50,000 women in the community, it didn't have that energy behind it. 
And that was the weekend where I went, right, now's the time. You've just got to go in, Kim. You've got to go all in. And I knew that my single job from that moment forward, because I had no more money, was to get funding. I can tell you another story about how we got the funding. But that was the kind of like triggers. It was like, we just need to go for it now. We're not going to go any further. We can't compete in this marketplace. We've got to go for it. So is that kind of realisation of the need to go to scale in order to take it to the next level? I'm in a very competitive category, the wellness, you know, meditation, blah, blah, blah. And a lot of these companies have had collectively over $100 million worth of investment. It'd be more than that, loads more. So on my piddly, which was a lot of money to me at the time, we'd spent £75,000, which was a lot of money for us. It just wasn't enough, really. Absolutely. Mark, if I can come to you and ask you the same question, kind of what is it that made you realize you needed to look for funding? I think there was two things. One of them, and it's probably very similar for most people, but hiring. Who can't relate as a founder to Kim's story about being close to burnout? You know, I think every single person who starts a business gets to that point and you're doing absolutely everything. And it's crazy too, because I think one of the most challenging times is actually when you do end up hiring someone, but transitioning Mm -hmm. from working in your business to working on your business. And that's what every founder wants to get to. They want to focus more on the forecast. They want to look at the market opportunities. They want to go and cut deals, but you're so busy day to day doing whatever it might be. In our case, packing boxes. Nobody really talks about the challenge of that transition of going from working in the business and then going to work on the business because you have to do all of it in that transition phase, work in it and work on it. It's not like this clean cut. So funding typically can help a lot with that. And that's what we were looking at. We were at the point now where our bandwidth was really short. But on the flip side, and this is the one I'd like to talk more about, is that we went after funding because we thought it was what we had to do. It was part of the narrative. If you're going to be a successful founder, you need to go raise money, whether you need it or not. And also not understanding where to get that money from, because there's so many different places to get it. So I would always say there's that real tangible need of us needing to hire. But then regardless of that, I had this urge and this need to say, oh, my God, We've got to get in the newspaper with a million dollar funding round. Otherwise, you know, we haven't been successful yet. So it was very interesting and and trying to grapple with those needs. And I touched at the beginning on kind of it can be more challenging for minorities and and women to get funding. The the headline that always comes up is less than 1% of global VC funding goes to female and minority entrepreneurs. Did either of you kind of feel that when you were starting that funding journey? Yeah, big time. (laughs) I felt like it was just constantly in my face, that narrative. I always say narrative, it's not narrative, it's it's fact, right? You know, that hardly any women get funding. And I found it really unhelpful, to be honest, because I'm quite a sensitive person and, you know, I think about things quite a lot. And because I put all my money into it, I was like, oh my God, I'm going into this thinking I'm on the back foot the entire time. And I put myself under a lot more pressure because I had those numbers in my head. Mm. And actually, I wish I'd done it. If I could do it again, I would have used that fact in a different way, which is, what if I'm one of those people? You know, it changes your whole mindset when you think about it in a different way. I found the whole process of fundraising really, really stressful because I had that in my head. Yeah, I think um, for myself, it was interesting because while I was fundraising, I didn't even know that stat. I didn't realize, I talk about it a lot now and and now understanding it, but I've always said that minorities or anybody who doesn't get that sort of silver lining, like rich, white, male, your dad's golfing with the VC or whoever it might be, 
whoever doesn't get that red carpet rolled out, minorities are better suited to go into business because we're used to being told no to all the time. So when I was being told no to by VCs, you're right. There probably was a part of it that had to do with the fact that, you know, I'm black and people were like, I don't trust or I don't want to invest or there's a bad stat around this. I never looked at it that way. I was just used to being told no to all the time anyway. So I just kind of kept knocking on more and more mm-hmm. doors. It's unfortunate it's the world that we live in, but I can't stress it enough. I think anybody who's a minority is better equipped to take on the challenges of entrepreneurship than anybody who's ever been given a silver spoon. Yeah. So I say that I personally struggled with it in my own head, my own mindset, put a lot of pressure on myself around it. But actually, in some ways, I do think it was helpful, possibly because of the niche that I'm in, which talks to a lot of intersectionality between feminism, wellness, mental health, all these things. And then the stats around female founders, we opened up a lot of doors that hadn't been opened before, putting aside my own confidence around it. I think touching on, on Mark's point of getting used to people saying no, that really builds that resilience. And having talked to both of you before this session, I get a real feel of resilience and determination from both of you, which I think has to be number one in important characteristics of a founder of a business, even before you go for funding. Being an entrepreneur, you know, or a founder, you're not a CEO, you're not a CTO, you're not a CMO, you're not a salesperson, you're just a professional problem solver. Yeah. Because every single day you're getting punched in the face, every single (laughs) day you're being told no to or dealing with some sort of fire. So the sooner you can realize that you're a professional problem solver, not the easier your journey will be, but the easier it is to digest that it'll be. See each of those problems as a positive challenge, maybe. And I think one of the things I love about both of your businesses is they have real clear purpose of what you're trying to achieve and and kind of really clear values of what you want to do. So how important was it who you got funding from rather than just the funding itself? Mark, if I can come to you first on that one. When you're in it and you're a first-time founder and you need that money and you don't have the experience, you don't know any better. (laughs) Like you're willing to hop on any check that comes your way. And that's just the way it would be. You're tired, you're stressed, you don't know, you've got a check coming in front of you. You think as soon as you get that money, everything is good to go and you can keep running the business. But often that's not the case. And we had a really successful story with True Local. Actually, just at the end of last year, we were acquired by Emerge Commerce for $16.7 million. And it's funny because I always look back to say that if I had gotten any of the money that we were pitching in the early days, so when we were going out and looking to do, you know, hey, we'll, we'll do a 10% deal for $100,000 or any of those deals that we got told no to the entire way through, this acquisition and this partnership never would have happened. It's the same thing because once again, by the time we ever ended up raising money, we'd already raised the valuation of the business. So that way we were able to change the narrative of instead of us going up to people saying, hey, can I get a hug and a check? It was more like, hey, well, what are you able to provide us in terms of giving you access to the equity in this business? And the same thing went through on the VC side of things. We were always early to raise. So we were always being told no to. And that then forced us to succeed in different ways and grow the business in different ways, which worked out. And then by the time VCs were knocking, the valuations has raised and we were in a position to actually say no. And looking at it, I think it's very important to understand where your funding is coming from because different stages of business require different funding needs. And there are a lot of companies that do not need VC funding. A lot of companies are going to do better with just angel funding, get you off the ground. You've got a talented team, go run at it. Now, when you look at SaaS or any sort of enterprise sales or heavy R&D technology, there's value in VC because maybe you need to get to market first. 
maybe you need the connections and the relationships that VCs have, but not every business is a VC business. So that's something that I always highlight. And fortunately with us, we scaled the company to $20 million with only angels. We had no VC partners. So just interesting how there's a lot of different ways to get to where you want to go. Absolutely. And I think back to your point of being a professional problem solver, I love that as a definition of a founder. It's that piece of every time someone says no, you have to pivot to how you do it with the money that you've got at the time, right? And you learn something each time. I think that's a really interesting kind of take on not getting funding when you asked for it. Did you kind of jump in with both feet when you went for funding or did you kind of reflect a bit as the business grew? So there's a few things about our journey. So when I decided that I was going to quit my job and fundraise, I didn't do it on my own. So I was fortunate enough. I was at speaking at this big breakfast on mental health and was approached by a guy who, his name's Mellon, who's actually a small angel investor in our business. We're invested by impact investors, VC investors. And he approached me and said, look, if you're going to raise funds, you're probably going to need some help. And I definitely (laughs) was like, I know I need help. I've got no idea. I felt like the whole world of raising money was just like entering a different universe that I didn't have the key to and didn't understand the language. Everybody looked alien. I just knew nothing about it. And so he joined the journey with me. We were very strategic about the way that we even thought about where do we want the money to come from. Actually, we went quite far down the route of about to crowdfund. Because I have such a community-focused business, we felt that that would have been a really good option. But we also then were talking to angels. We were talking to VCs, you know, the right ones. And it just so happened that very early in our journey and in these conversations, we met Fortunus, who are our impact investors. So to be completely frank with you, I would have literally just taken the money straight away because I was so stressed. And I just was like, oh my God, I'm going to get paid a salary. Like I can hire some people. Like this is a route out for me to scale, but you know, feel better. Two things happen. One, which was Melon. I'm so glad he was with me. He was like, look, let's just not jump at this straight away. Let's step back, reflect. Let's keep meeting everybody because this happened very early in our journey. And he said, Let's just not take the first deal on the table. Let's see what happens. And he was right because actually we'd undervalued the company massively, even at that very early stage. And then the other thing that happened, this is probably going to sound really stupid, but um, my husband, who is not connected with the business, but obviously massively connected to me, I'd made some quite big fundamental mistakes (laughs) with the business earlier that he knew he saw them coming like straight on he knows my blind spots more than anybody and so I'd realized this and so I said to the investor I said look I'd really like you to meet my husband he's not part of the business but he will be able to suss out the situation better than I could because I'm also a massive optimist so it was really important to have some people that I trusted around me otherwise I probably just would have taken the first deal on the table that massively undervalued the company And it's helpful having that balance, I think, isn't it, of someone who is invested in it in an emotional way, but not so invested they can't take a step back because it's not their baby, for one thing. Yeah, exactly. Who invested is really important to me. Again, it was all new to me, so I wanted to feel like I felt really comfortable with those people and that they weren't trying to grow the company so quickly that it made me, again, feel like I wasn't confident with what I was doing, so it was important. 
And I think, especially with VC versus angel investors, sometimes the stories about VCs and how involved they want to be. Lots of entrepreneurs and founders hear lots of those stories about VCs maybe taking over those decisions and that making them nervous going down the VC route. In terms of kind of for both of you, really, but maybe Kim starting with you as you had VC funding, kind of how involved in the business are the investors? Yeah, massively involved. And I've been on my own journey with this as well, because we had to have a very honest conversation very early on before we signed the deal, which was this is not passive investment. This is not just a check. They call it active investment. So they sit on the board. We talk weekly and I suppose it was a reframing in my mindset of control. They weren't trying to take control. Actually, what it was is that they were trying to help (laughs) and support and nurture and go, okay, well, you're the founder, but you've never done this. Let's wrap our arms around you and help you get to where you need to be. But I resisted that a little bit, if I'm honest as well. It's not easy to let go of something that quickly (laughs) with people that you, you know, you trust. There's a certain level of trust, but until you really get into it. But it's been brilliant. And I really, it's not right for everybody. Everybody's got their own journey and needs to match their own path. But for us, I felt it really helpful to have active investment. Brilliant. And Mark, obviously, you stuck with angel investors rather than VC. And how does that differ for you from Kim's experience? It's vastly different. And I always love hearing very different stories because they always end up at the same place um, when you talk about successful startups. So there's so many ways to find success. But for us, we had completely hands-off angels. I think that we were fortunate. We weren't in reinventing the wheel. We just needed to execute. And for us, that falls in the same line when you talk about different incubators or accelerators. And a lot of people were telling us, you know, why don't you get involved in these sort of programs? And we didn't need that sort of guidance. We really just needed the funds and that we needed to start running. And that was where it came from. And, and we got lucky with our angels because they signed the check and they were there when we needed them and never popped up until they trusted us. They trusted the team. They trusted the vision. They trusted the business and allowed us to go execute. And if we made mistakes, they were okay with that. They trusted that we'd be able to get back on our feet. And I think that helped a lot because I think in those really critical year one and year two phases, we had a good vibe and we had a good, I guess, cadence. And I think that if someone was coming in a little bit too overbearing, that would have actually derailed that. And because now it's a, it's a hyper-competitive market, we might have lost that year's head start, just fumbling around on different things. Mm-hmm. So for us, that was the relationship that we had with our angels. Um, and then once again, of course, when it comes to making serious business decisions, the example being the acquisition, it helps streamline that quite a bit when they're minority investors. And at the end of the day, you can do what's best for the business and for your team. Um, without having to worry about investors coming in and maybe putting the brakes on something like that. So that was our experience with angel investment. Mm-hmm. Having the support when you wanted it, but still maintaining that control. For sure. Just, you know, understanding that with where we were at and the type of business we were running, we didn't know what we were doing every single day, but we had a good momentum. We were moving at a good pace. Awesome. And t- really nice to hear kind of two different success stories with very different approaches. Mm-hmm. Lots of the people listening today will be, potentially small business owners and entrepreneurs looking to take that next step and looking to work out how do I tap into that external funding and that VC network. My guess is if I was to ask some of those listening, their first question would be, where do I start? You know, what's the first thing that I would do? So guys, where do you start? Okay. So before you even think about what kind of funding, I talk to founders about this every week because I feel like I need to share my journey. 
I think you need to think about what you want and how much money do you want? What do you need it for? What's the narrative that goes around all of this? I spent about six weeks doing that. Probably Mark did it. I don't know how long he's like coming up with like a pitch deck. And whilst we were doing that, then we were quite nerdy and quite strategic about researching what all the different types of funding were because it's not just VC there's angels there's crowdfunding you can do a friends and family round which I had never even thought of doing not that my anyone's got any money but and also in the UK I know this is for everybody but there's so much grant funding out there so you just have to like work out what do you want what do you want it for and then what kind of funds do you think you feel comfortable with and will they match what you need it for that's a lot of research. And as part of that, I spoke to loads of founders. I used my network and LinkedIn and just like messaged them. I was like, look, can you tell me about your journey? And that's when I really learned about the pros and cons from different people's perspectives. And, and then I was getting sort of my own views of, oh, that's, I'm discounting that. I'm discounting that. This feels better. If that makes sense. Were the founders that you contacted on LinkedIn, were they happy to kind of give you some time and I never had one founder turn me down amazing I never say no to someone when they want to talk to me it's quite a nice thing actually <laughs> I know exactly what you're saying Kim and, and so many times you always think that it's gonna be hard to get in touch with these people but if you send an authentic message on LinkedIn to another founder they know what you're going through and they have no problem talking and there's so many things to echo Kim what you're saying you know finding the right type of money and I think that I gotta echo that a little bit more because whenever you're in it you never look at it the logical way. You're like, I need the money. I don't care where it's coming from. I'll take it. But really taking a step back to see, am I an angel style business? Is it a VC? Can I do it crowdfunding? Because that way you've got non-dilutive sources of funding. That's amazing. Do I want to go to a bank loan? Do I want to go after some grants? There is a lot of different ways. It doesn't just have to be pitching VC after VC after VC. I always get the question is, how did you find these angels? Or how do you find get these connections? And this is the easiest way to look at it. All you need to do is find one rich person. That's it. <laughs> You're going to do a thousand pitches, but you don't have to worry about finding a thousand different people to pitch. You got to find one. And I promise you, they love to brag and they love to talk about <laughs> all the rich people they know. So if they say no, just go ahead and be like, no problem. I appreciate it. Anybody else you think I could talk to who's interested and they'll give you a list of all their rich <laughs> friends or whoever else that you can start connecting with. Yeah. And that's everything for me. It's just, you got to meet one individual who's willing to help whether they invest or not, and then just start asking for leads and actions. And you'd be surprised how quick your network will grow in terms of trying to raise money. Well, one of the things we did is we went through my LinkedIn because I'd spent quite a bit of time sort of curating and trying to add people in for months and months and months and stuff. I didn't realize, because I remember Melon saying to me, he was like, well, you'll definitely know some people in your network. And I was like, I definitely won't know anyone in my network. <laughs> I don't have friends like that, or I don't know anyone. But it's not true, because what you forget is that someone in your network is connected to someone else who's connected to someone else. And what we did is we started sharing like our pitch deck and saying, oh, we'd just love to chat and get some feedback. And actually that was just a way in. And then they'd be like, oh, but I know so-and-so who could help you. You know what they say, right? They say, when you're looking for money, ask for help. When you're looking for help, ask for money. That's it. Yeah, I love that. It's so true though. I've taken some really, really great things away from that piece we've just been talking about. I think that networking piece is so strong and never underestimate the power of it. 
I have one final question for you. If someone comes to you and you're a founder, say they reach out via LinkedIn and say, look, I've set up a business. I'm really trying to work out how, what do I do next? What's the best piece of advice that you could give as an experienced founder? I would say one of the biggest things, it sounds very obvious, but you got to start getting that first community of customers. And it's not about going and spending a ton of money on ads to go buy customers because those ones won't stick around. They're going to crush your lifetime values. You're going to spend a lot of money to get them. And then nobody cares. And if anything, when it comes down to actually trying to raise money, you're going to have really poor KPIs. What you need to do is spend your time interacting with each and every single customer that comes in the door in those early months and find those. I see so many people spend so much time with it. I've got this amazing idea and they've already gotten the, the deck and the plans and all this. And they're just like, oh, all I need is money. No, no, no. All you need is the first few customers. Go do that. And then watch how quickly the money starts to come. So I would say just drill down on finding those first few customers. Don't ever discount those first few people. Don't ever think, okay, well, these are the ones that just came to the door. I'm going to go after the volume people. You need to love these customers. The same strategy, ask them for referrals. That's got to be one of the biggest pieces of advice for someone who's already gotten started. First of all, I echo what Mark is saying around that. Like I was just talking to some founders this week who have almost skipped a step (laughs) in the process. I see this all the time where people jump to solutions because they love the space and they see the big market opportunity. But what they forget to do is really sweat the thing that comes before the solution, which is the problem. And then thinking, is this still the solution that the world needs to fix this problem? The solution that I saw this week, I was like, there's a market full of these solutions, right? And it felt like a little bit old hat. So what they needed to do, and they were spending all their time on the solution. And I'm like, you need to go back to the problem. You haven't spoken about the problem once. I've never heard you talk about it. So go back to the problem and then think, okay, is this really the way to do it? And often I see them over-engineering, a lot of over-engineering of solutions. And because of that, they've spent a lot of time and effort on a solution and haven't built up just what Mark was saying, any sort of community, any sort of traction. They're just building a Rolls-Royce solution and I'm like oh god go back go back to the problem come up with the simplest solution sometimes that might be writing a blog it could be setting up a podcast that starts talking about the problem whatever it is and just get some sort of proof that you're on to something here without spending shed loads of money on some big feature or product I feel like people jump way too quick to solutions you just got to get a, a minimal viable product out, an MVP. Just see if you're even solving a problem. There's so many solutions that don't even solve a problem. Exactly. That, that yeah. really does my head in. There are lots of apps that exist like that, I feel, yeah. if I go into my Apple store and have a look. And I can safely say, Kim, because I, you know I do use your app. <laughs> I'm not, in that. not one of those because I love it. I absolutely love it. Thank you, guys. That's been absolutely amazing. And um, for the benefit of all of those listening, I'm going to run over a couple of my favorite takeaways from the session today and some of your piece of advice. So please do add if there's anything else that leaps to mind. I think that value your customer piece is really, really important. What I loved about that last piece both of you were just talking about is don't worry about the solution until you've really done the MPV of actually I've, I've got a problem. Let's test what that problem is. Get some customer feedback. Be, find those first customers as really valuable and then create something that's really simple as a solution and don't over-engineer it. I think when it comes to funding, the big thing I took away is use your network. Don't be scared. Don't be afraid to say no. Be resilient. 
and actually keep going, keep knocking on doors, keep using that network and that network of others. I think that's really powerful. If you don't ask, you don't get right. The worst that can happen is someone says no. And I think the biggest thing that I've taken away and, you know, I'm lucky enough to work with a lot of entrepreneurs in HSBC because I work in our business banking. I work with lots of SMEs around the world and, and I am in awe of anyone who runs their own business. But I think the biggest thing I've taken away from today, and I think probably resonates with anyone who runs their own business, you are a professional troubleshooter. I'm keeping that. I think that is absolutely the best description of someone who runs their own business. So any other final thoughts to share? We're two founders here, two different journeys. You just got to march your own path with this stuff. Listen, learn, but just do what feels right for you in here. Don't just follow what everyone else does. Absolutely. And that was kind of where I was going with it too. Everybody thinks that when you see a successful founder that they had it all figured out or that (laughs) they got lucky or that they just had a great idea. That's not the case. And one thing that really helped me was understanding that every founder trips and falls along the way. And it's not just you because I guarantee all of you are tripping and falling right now all over the place. It's just the way it is. (laughs) Know that that is so normal and it's part of going where you need to go. That's the last thing I'd leave you guys with. Yeah. Nice. Brilliant. I think an awesome ending. Kim, Mark, thank you so much for your time. I've really appreciated it. I've really enjoyed our session. Thank you both. Thank you. Thank you. This has been a special production of our Inspiring Progressive Business mini-series. There will be more episodes focusing on a number of different topics, such as starting your green journey, being cyber resilient, and how having a purpose-led mindset could benefit your business. Please listen out for those. Thank you for joining us for HSBC Talks Business. To learn more about anything you heard today, please visit business.hsbc.com.